on one of the episodes about how cool it would have been to have like Leotar and Baudrillard pair up for their own sort of DNG like yeah. Oh, yeah. That would have been cool. That would have been fucking amazing. <laughs> that would have really what is it all a way. canceled a canceled future we never got. <laughs> Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Also sponsored by at Outsideness on Twitter.com. Before we get started with today's guest, just want to mention I have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you're enjoying the show, do consider you know throwing us a buck a month to help. Uh, we have uh, reconvened the libidinal band for another deep dive into Leotar's libidinal economy. And I've got the usual suspects joining me, Taylor Atkins, cute Numina, young Agamben. As we look at chapter five, capital from the Hamilton, Hamilton translation of libidinal economy. Welcome back to the, uh, what is it, the dojo, maybe we can call it? Dojo. <laughs> the libidinal dojo. The, Enter the, the void. The inner sanctum. I guess we can also an- announce officially that Taylor's going to be joining the podcast as as official co-host. So that Great. that's really exciting news. Yes. Looking forward to like making that official. I feel like you've been like the unofficial co-host for the last year or so. Hey, yeah, I mean, I'm just a recurring guest. You can't get rid of me. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Uh, um, it's a it's a perfect name a better duo. You can't. Just, yeah, that's <laughs> crossover since Deleuze and Guattari. <laughs> I just I just can't quit you. I have joked with Taylor about this because I I do think it is kind of funny that he's like the Deleuze in this uh, duo because he's the philosophy yeah. expert guy, and I'm like the wacky Lacan, the militant wacky Lacan stan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Works so, perfectly. Now we yeah. just need to get you to memorize Lacan like like Watery did. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that was horrifying to read in that in the in the biography that he he literally like memorized Lacan and would just you know, he'd get you in a corner and just fucking like you know, reiterate it to you. And I, yeah. I, I that sounds like honestly it's it's base, but it sounds fucking like torture. Yeah. Sounds kinda cr- sounds kinda cringe where <laughs> like <laughs> okay, cringe only in like as far as like people on Twitter do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mucho yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it texto. It, it's like yes, a right. Mucho right. texto. Yep. Mm-hmm. It, what is it? Is it is it affirm- affirmation a little bit that it wasn't until like I think I talked to Andrew Culp that I even knew that Guattari was kind of a student of Lacan's. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of very validating. I guess that he saw something in Lacan's ideas at least initially that kind of propelled his intellectual journey and trajectory yeah. right yeah all the all the cool kids were, were doing <laughs> lacanian psychoanalysis in the <laughs> 60s this is a really dense chapter yeah and i think again i've mentioned that like recency bias in terms of how much i enjoy this chapter in comparison to the rest of the book but yeah i don't know i think it's uh this was an amazing chapter the 
content is is pretty riveting i think yeah and very eclectic yeah so many disparate schools of thought just kind of smashing into each other in a beautiful destructive creative destruction right yeah because we're like it's a sort of mashup of everything from Taoist (laughs) Taoism and to like the 1929 stock market crash yeah so we're running like a pretty wide gamut and then even like discussion of credit and so forth but also the Chinese erotics the Athenian erotics it might be helpful to kind of at first separate some of these pieces because they're pretty difficult to understand how they play in. The thing about like opening up with Taoism specifically, I was really interested in this. It seems to me like there's a specific argument being made here. And I'll just like read, can I read a quote from 206 in the Hamilton about, he says explicitly about the Tao, how it relates. And he says, if the Tao is important to us libidinal economists, it is not because of its nihilism, but because of its refinement and the search for and the affirmation of mutability and thereby the non-existence in it of the question of the subject. It's almost like the Tao is not passively, not, or at least libidinal economy is not Taoist in that passive nihilism, but there's almost, there's a libidinal affirmation here of what the Tao sort of the, the same underlying material that the Tao is commenting on. But I was wondering what exactly that affirmation is of in your guys' minds. I have a few ideas, obviously, but I was really interested, and I think it's helpful for me personally and probably for people reading the book, about coming to grips with why Leotard starts with this like connection to Taoism. He leaves that an open question as well, does he not? Right. I picked up on the same passage, but go ahead, Taylor. We talked about it last night where I where he seems to come out of left field making that claim and part of the claim he will about the non-existence of the subject, this, this not being a, this being a non-problem for, for Taoist erotics. And it seems like he comes back to it in the next paragraph when he starts to go into the, the Meyer May stuff about the, um, he doesn't say Meyer May, but he, he starts to talk about the non-place that right. sweeps over the the labyrinthine band rather than circumscribing it. And he says sort of towards the end of that next paragraph about, he goes from Taoist erotics to no theater and mm-hmm. the, the kind of undecidability of, of the gestures in no, this kind of hyper, I guess these like, sort of micro differentiations in the in the gestures and the and the the tilting of the the body and etc so he talks about this non-place or unthinkable place which is precisely the passage of intensity that's mm-hmm. the only way i could make sense of leotard making the leap that that the that the stuff that he had remarked about from the manual of love of of male harnessing you know, the, uh, the Yang harnessing the, the female energies. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I felt like that was, that was perhaps the leap, but I still, I'm still, uh, I'm not convinced, but I'm excited by that claim because it does feel like a claim more than something that obviously in the whole book, yeah. he has been moving this way where he, he, he seems to 
always be like pushing us forward or dragging us behind. And we're, 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 we're always playing catch up or, or having to like uh, coordinate with, with Leotar, who's not always going to explain things. So I, I don't know. What, what did you guys think? I really like what you said. Cause I, I kind of was leading in that direction to this carving out of a non place. And it seems mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. Leotard has both Taoist erotics and madness as sort of at least not the only but two of the major paths to carving out a non-place which makes sense in what you were saying taylor that a non-place sort of is inherently a madness an, un mm. an unrepresentability of just pure intensity that separates itself off from what i would call like the consensus reality or what leotard might call like the mutually agreed upon slowing down of the band the mutually agreed upon representation of subjectivity and objectivity that we have. Do we want to go back and talk a little bit about just setting up how he gets even to the point that, that, that Chris and I have discussed this, this, this question of Taoist erotics implying the non-existence of the subject, or at least not that not being a problem for it. Like we might find in, you know, traditional Western philosophy. I mean, do we want to talk a little bit about this, this opening up of um, what's going on with, with this, this interplay of, of energies? So much of this early, that discussion just brought to mind Lacan so much. And just in terms of that, I don't know if zero is necessarily lack. I think maybe it's more of some type of like a virtual thing for Leotard. On that note, let me just see what you guys think about this, because I picked up and read a little bit from Seminar 16 from Lacan from 69, and I almost wonder if Leotard's in attendance, and I'll read directly from this translation. The most characteristic, the most subtle form that we have given of the function, cause of desire, is what is called masochistic enjoyment. It is an analogical enjoyment, namely that at the level of surplus enjoying. The subject takes on a qualified fashion, this position of loss, of waste product that is presented, represented by zero. And his whole effort is to constitute the other as the field simply articulated in the style of this law, of this contract, which our friend Deleuze has so happily emphasized to supply for the trembling imbecility that reigns in the field of psychoanalysis. So I don't know if that necessarily has any purchase in terms of this non-subject, but... I feel like maybe that's my shitty understanding of Lacan is that there is a certain um, similarity here. Leotard's main, he makes a little swipe at, at Lacan though, right? He brings him up to, to, to dismiss him. And yeah. because Lacan is, you know, at least for the psychoanalysts and, and that the school that he tries to carve out and the identity he tries to give it is precisely Lacan is resurrecting this theory of the subject and giving it central importance you know Badu says the same thing by like turning to Lacan and 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 Descartes that that the theory of the subject is paramount and can't it can't just be swept away like uh by by quote-unquote postmodernism or post-structuralism and I think Lyotard is here Again, he, do, he doesn't really argue with Lacan or argue against him. He just brings him up uh, in relation to it. Where is it? He says, yeah, here, I found this, a quote? Yeah, I've got a good quote from, uh, this should be what, 205? Such a displacement requires the production on the woman's part as of the man's of subjects, that is to say of unitary 
and empty instances, which by definition will in fact never be sufficiently owned since they are only an instan instantiation of zero of the pulsions. Continuing in this direction, one soon discovers so-called modern problematics, such as are found in Lacan, which highlights notions of the lack of jouissance, manque à jouir, and the elusiveness of the libidinal object. Let's observe, however, that these problematics are not in fact dominated by precisely that which does not in any way hang over Taoist thought, even less its erotics, the category of the subject. For if the Tao is important to the, us libidinal economists, it is not because of its nihilism, but because of its refinement in the search for an affirmation of that mutability and therefore the non-existence. Okay, so that's the same quote. Yeah, yeah. Non-existence yeah. in of it of the question of the subject. So it's just yeah. it's just interesting that he... Because when he does bring up Lacan in this text, and we've talked about it almost every time we've gotten together and questioned whether or not he was at the seminars and attendance <laughs> and these other yeah. things. But he, whenever he brings up Lacan in this text, he, it's never in the way like he does with Marx or with Freud even, where there seems to be a theoretical point. With Lacan, it always seems to be just a kind of, I mean, was it in chapter three where he, he quotes Lacan's definition of love, right? Um, giving... Giving yeah, someone, yeah, what we don't have, who doesn't, who doesn't want, want it. it. Right. Yeah, and, and he like, but he gives that weird definition about crying near lightning strikes. You know, it's like, yeah, it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's almost, it's not a, it's not clear what Leotar is trying to do, except I guess for us to kind of call into question or to doubt, you know, why is it the Lacan is what where where is that difference right that the like lacanian subjectivity becomes paramount whereas with Taoist erotics that's a non-problem i don't know what to do with it yeah honestly <laughs> i was just gonna because i i really like the tao te ching just for like for my own personal reading i really like going back to that and i i write down a lot of the quotes but i was sort of trying to be like what what is he saying when he's saying the tao is a libidinal economic in a way, or at least coincides with a libidinal economic sort of tradition. Yeah. So yeah. I was just going to read like in the, in the Tao Te Ching, there's a couple verses in, you know, the first few uh, in the one I have, it's like listed by number, but I didn't write the numbers down. So there's just a few lines though, right after each other where it says the Tao seems empty, yet it is never ex exhausted. It dulls its own sharpness, breaks its own bonds, dims its own brightness, identifies with its own dust. The space between earth and the stars is like a bellows. It is empty, but does not collapse. As it contracts, it creates. In, in my mind, it, it makes sense that he, that Leotard would want to identify kind of with the Tao because in the Tao, there's sort of this concept of the libidinal band in a way, not expressed in that kind of metaphor, metaphorical way, but the libidinal band, right. so to speak, is, is, the, is the Tao, but I would argue it's sort of the way the Tao expresses itself because if the Tao is passively nihilist, you know, the guy who wrote it just went into the woods, left society and said, you know, I'm done. Here's how everything works. It's the Tao, the way. He's saying, oh, like, that's not what we want out of it. The passive nihilism of it, of just being like, okay, I understand things. But the Tao sort of represents something that can be understood as libidinal economics. <laughs> if, if, you kind of, if you kind of say the way is actually, you know, that, that sort of, heating up of the libidinal band that also cools itself down. Right. It yeah. dulls its own sharpness, breaks its own bonds, dims its own brightness, and identifies with its own dust. So I, I sort of see in a way 
this connection between the Tao and why it's sort of important to libidinal economists. But these are obviously only my subjective connections from reading the Tao and reading libidinal economy. Maybe that discussion of, or that sort of juxtaposition that he discusses with the like the practice like the sexual practices of the Athenians versus the the Taoist erotics. Remember, mm-hmm. because he's kind of contrasting those two approaches to you might even say approaches to the libidinal economy. Yeah. And uh, Taylor was, and I discussed last yeah. night that there is this on the Greek side. It's the the sexual act with the with the woman is merely to propagate the like. There's no. It's sort of a the desire of the libidinal cathexis is for the homo homoeroticism to make more men. Yeah, yeah. Contrasted right. with the the Taoist erotics, where there's more of a yeah. It almost now that you mention that sort of model of the libidinal band applying to Taoism, I think that yeah brings things into a bit of a sharper focus as far as it does have that sort of. Yeah, because it is sort of yeah. that two-dimensional, you know, that permeable membrane between each side and the flows of desire and energy back and forth. Right. The potential for reversal because the man, by bringing the woman to orgasm, can sort of reabsorb. Like, I think typically, right, the model is the female, the woman absorbs the male. I guess the semen is the what? It's like the energy source. I mean, the way he says it, it's almost like in the Chinese erotics, the man shouldn't come, like shouldn't ejaculate because they're storing almost like the nofap kind of right. ideology of like we don't want to expend our right. precious bodily fluids literally yeah and he, he makes the point that there's also you know the the woman's handbook for different exercises to conserve her yeah. her essence and her so it's it's kind of like a wrestling match mm-hmm. and uh you know so it is a, as you said it is about intensification and he he even says like there's the difference between the Greek penis and the Chinese penis as you're getting at coop right that the Greek penis is mm. let's let's come and meet let's come in the womb and make the baby and that's that's not a that's not a result of the intensification that's just a, a necessary evil so yeah, to speak right yeah exactly um, to continue the the homosociality and the homosexuality that's 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 desired at least as the as the goal but in 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 Taoist erotics it seems like when you when you do come you you have had to have practiced all of these these ways of conserving and intensifying and damming up such that and this gets back to what Chris was why why you know quoting the the Tao was great because this is where Leotard says that it the Taoist erotics start to shift towards a, a mysticism, a cosmology, and a hygienics, right? Because the the end goal would be not just for the health of the the male to keep the semen in, but also provisionally to have uh, beautiful male heirs. So it's interesting, right? Because because I think with the Taoist erotics, the goal is like an optimum. Right, because obviously, ideally, at the limit, if all you're making is male heirs, you're not going to have any wombs to eventually right. make more. <laughs> so it's this kind of optimum shifting of of forces and, and energies, and and of and of potentially, you know, potentially inexhaustible surpluses. That's such uh, an interesting. Is, yeah. that's such an interesting like tension between those two. You could even map that onto the the Taoist yin yang energy, right? Yeah. Because like on one side you have, there's very little 
libidinal cathexis in terms on the Greek side, but there is very much so, it's very much so the opposite in terms of the Taoist erotics, right? Right. He says that the Greeks didn't, for the Greeks, the female orgasm wasn't a problem, wasn't really a question, wasn't a a goal to attain either. I mean, I'm sure there were some aspiring young bucks who were like, yeah, I can do that. But that wasn't <laughs> at least, I mean, again, I'm sure there are, you know, outliers and exceptions because of course we're moving in these broader generalizations, but right. you know, it, it, it does kind of follow from the logic that, that we laid out last time with the Lydians prostituting their daughters, thereby, thereby sterilizing them. And so it's the object of exchange is the womb is, 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 is sort of empty and, and, and barren. I mean, it's obviously a kind of violent way, but yeah. um, I, I guess that's why he moves immediately from Taoist erotics to the no theater, because it is a mm-hmm. kind of dance. It is a kind of, it's a different type of exchange than what we, what we see him talking about in the mercantilist, the trade, you know, the trade section. I was going to mention briefly, because I think you guys all touched on really good points, but it reminds me of like the first part of the book itself about the flattening out of the body. Yeah. You know, kind of like expanding on it. How would I say that? Like this, making something horizontal or like expanding out in in the flat level. Destratifying. Yeah. Like destratifying, destratifying, I guess like, so in terms of like the destratification, what you have here is, I want to say like a, uh, in like a landian terms, like a going towards like the inhuman, if that makes sense. You see a transferring of essences or like energies, yeah. which you can connect to like thermodynamics, which I think Leotard goes later yeah, into. He this, even he does mention in the second chapter. law, yeah. But in a way, it's like a like an inhuman transfer. You dissolve the subject or the ego, you could say, and instead you have these external forces that you can use to explain individual or atomized instances and so instead of having like these concrete transactional how would you say like these transactional yeah exchanges you have these flows these flows of energy i guess you could say yeah just like if you had that i've often it's diffusion right between membranes Mm -hmm. so like if you have that membrane in between two things and you heat up one side right versus the other that's going to create it's um, you know what i mean like the great ocean conveyor belt right too as well as like a good example of how that heat versus cold and the flows and how that sort of reaches a that equilibrium point. Unless you have a negative entropy machine. <laughs> Maxwell's demon, you know? The cute, that does remind me, at some point in the text, he mentions something about a, the head. Ultimately, uh, however, a head is necessary to which sometime something flows back and is reserved. An instance of collection and relief coupled with the intention of to reach one or even several goals. At first, what offers the most mystical and also most popular goals is immortality, the return to mutability, to the void, and the loss of false subjectivity and weakness, which is true strength. I mean, it goes without saying he's speaking in terms of the Tao, yeah. right? That that weakness is, quote-unquote, true strength it, it, from that perspective of, of, of... You just look at some of the, some of the passages that, that Chris mentioned... And that that holds. I was thinking about that head, though, in the like terms of is this does this have anything to do with this flattening out of of structure of like the way that Deleuze and Guattari do in terms of like destratification or 
like rhizomatic versus arboreal? I was thinking just more that it was related to him, the initial block quote, which said that reserving the orgasm, the semen turns back towards the brain, towards the head. Yeah. Right. I think that's, I think that's really all that, that he's saying here. I mean, but, you know, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to like say you're wrong. I, that's just how I took it. Right. Gotcha. But logically him, him basically saying, but is the head like the head of, of what, of this, of the system or of like, I don't know. I'm, I just want to kind of flesh out what he's getting at as far as like that return to the, the head is, is he saying that the head is a necessary evil or, I think here it's a metaphor or an analogy for the reservoir um, the energy image that he'll bring bring out, right? Mm-hmm. And so the head would be the, in terms of if we're thinking of the body as a, with all of its organs, <laughs> um, <laughs> not flattened out as Q was talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. Just just in a simple kind right. of image. Yeah, the, I guess the head would be the, if not the source, then the the intensified reservoir right because um, it does go back to how he starts off the chapter right that there's there's the different expenditures right that in the in the trade chapter expenditures always imply some sort of return on investment right whether it be the lay whether it be the analytic session but at the same time inevitably in there's always going to be the system's always going to lose some sort of energy due to heat loss and he says smoke and i believe uh he calls it a dissipation of quantities of of pulsions and he includes jouissance in that right yeah so i I read this quote about expenditures i think this is is exactly what you're talking about expenditures are far from being as we have seen absolute liberations from the reproductive cycle the outpourings of pulsional intensities pouring towards an alleged outside always give rise to a double process on one hand a more or less important proportion of these libidinal quantities is compensated for by a return, the doxina, payment for the lay, for the session, for words themselves, when they concern the small change of language, the concept. On the other hand, this process dissipates an irreversible and unusual quantity of pulsions as heat, as smoke, as jouissance, in any cycle of this type. These are on the circle, then. Effects of transmutation barely interrupted by expenditure as pure loss, i.e. by extravagant jouissances. But there still remains the whole question of what jouissance on the circle consists in. At most, we understand that this jouissance is perverse in contrast to those coursing through the sacrificial, analytic, or prostitutive offering, just as conversely the latter are if the former is taken as the point of instantiation. We have still to seize this jouissance affirmatively the model of which we have given somewhat arbitrarily as the mercantile function of the Greek city. I was going to mention, this reminds me of Bataille in reference to like expenditure. Just, I guess, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think he's making, what is it called? An implicit explicit. connection there. Or yeah, I guess explicit. Well, I, I, I guess he now just doesn't credit. Now I'm questioning myself. <laughs> no, he, he's like just not accrediting type, but I feel like this is. It is very similar to a cursed show. I mean, he does later on, even in this chapter, reference the sun, I think even directly. I could even control F this and see what the specific range. I think it's later on in the chapter. Yeah, even in that quote, he he contrasts, you know, that one implication of expenditure as, as involving a return with the other implication of expenditure as pure loss, which we went over 
last chapter. Mm-hmm. So I do think Bataille is, even if he's not named here, I mean, that's, Bataille is the thinker of pure loss expenditure, or at least he, yeah. in my mind, he, he, he gives it a logic. And, and Leotard, I don't know if he ever directly quotes the accursed share in this title, in this text, but he's, he's constantly looking at Bataille's literature, you know, as we've seen. But of course, even in this, te- I mean, this text is not a, a typical scholarly like citation text. So it's, it's kind of like what we went with Lacan, where he's just throwing Lacan's name out there without necessarily yeah. wanting us to look at any one, you know, writings of the Acree or, or anything like that. Here, yeah. I'm going to read this little section because I think it kind of sutures these two things together because it discusses both. And so the head, which is unemitted semen, climbs toward and collects itself in is not a mystical head but more bureaucracy for this Mm -hmm. head is the head of a family chief and this chief will be all the more powerful the greater number of male children he has and they will be all the more numerous and energetic the more he has hoarded his sperm and his treasure of sperm will be all the richer the more concubines he has therefore the richer or more capable he will be a military man man of high office procuring for himself numerous women in short, through this, the woman totally fulfills the function of an energy source. You could say the sun, soil, labor force, waterfall, wind, from which he must appropriate for himself the force that she can provide by optimizing her yield and transforming her into another form of energy, children here, which in turn by transmutation will give a supplement of energy. In this case, a large family, many fine male heirs, enabling the extension of the family and its powers and its clientele over the spaces on which the bureaucratic hierarchy is superimposed. To take seriously the joke I made earlier, there's there's a huge crossover for me between Leotard's conception of energy expenditure and entropy as it as it stands, especially as entropy comes into cybernetics as sort of, well, is it true that you need to expend energy continuously that, you know, there is a heat death of the universe at the end of a certain amount of time and within cybernetics and through the concept of Maxwell's demon, this almost promise that energy expenditure is not necessarily something that is inevitable. And the reason that comes through is Maxwell's demon is essentially a machine where you have on one side, very cold molecules, you know, and on the other side you have very warm molecules. So naturally the, molecules will move from one side to the other just by their sort of natural inclinations. But Maxwell's demon says, well, if you could actually have a little machine that could identify, you know, which particles are hot, which molecules are hot and which are cold, then you could separate the two without having entropy. So essentially Maxwell's demon is a negative entropy machine. And I think the cybernetic hypothesis is then, well, if you have the proper information, then entropy is not necessarily inevitable. Like the, inevitability of of expenditure and chaos so to speak literally probably chaos and entropy is not necessarily true and there's almost this connection to leotard here of entropy not being necessarily inevitable that each each one of these systems sort of has their own so to speak cooling of the libidinal band which in fact might be able to control the heating up of the libidinal band so to speak that the information from the coolings downs could actually have you control the expenditure of energy over a long time. Hence the 
you know, even the Chinese erotics of not expending your sperm, not expending the energy source for the female, almost like given the information, the proper amount of information and representation needed to make that decision, that these things are not, so to speak, inevitable, or even like the Tao, it's not just the way, it's like you can actually use information to control the way energy is expended and to contradict in a certain way what is considered like the universal law of the universe. It's interesting that he he will in the next section bring up cybernetics, at least for a moment. Yeah. And I like that he, in the same breath, wants to relate it to Freud's, some of his earliest stuff in 1895, although he never published it until after, obviously it was published after his death, the, the Project for a Scientific Psychology, where he is thinking about the firing of neurons and and physiological quotas of energy, psychological quotas of energy, et cetera. And he links it to some of the later stuff with Beyond the Pleasure Principle, right? This question of, as he says, uh, Eros making, making holes. And he literally says, this Eros is centered on a zero, the obvious zero of homeostatic regulation, but more, general, more generally, annihilation by the feedback, that is to say, by the repetition of the binding function of the system's every insignificant disparity of every threatening event. So I like that, you know, if we go from, Chris, your cosmological view down to, I think that Leotard is trying to say that we can, we can see the um, analogies are, you know, superimposed on the cosmological model that you were bringing up with Maxwell's demon, this question right. that Freud has about how the psychical apparatus deals with, with tensions, with, with surplus energy, right? And for Freud, it's always about discharging. It's always about mm -hmm. a healthy discharge, which is why he mentions the binding function there, right? That, that the psychical apparatus, when it succeeds in mastering some unforeseen event, it's able to not just incorporate it, but able to take on that, that stimulus, that charge, and in due time, bind it, so to speak, render it non-lethal to the, either to the sheath of the ego or to the, you know, to the functioning of the apparatus itself, and then discharge that tension, which for Freud is, is precisely what, what the cycle apparatus does. It's, it's meant right. to it's meant right. to be able to regulate that, ideally at least, right? Optimally, it's meant to regulate the tension in the system. You mentioned the discharge or like this dissipation, you could say. It reminds me of like a, these structures, like a heat sink, you know, like in a, in a yeah, computer, yeah. for example, uh, just to make the analogy more concrete. <laughs> may <laughs> use a hardcore metaphor. Yeah, I think um, I even like referenced that specifically. In the go on. Go ahead. But in terms of the, the heat sink, you could say there are these integrated structures which help or allow for the dissipation of energy this excess and as you stated taylor you know for freud it's always at this this discharge you know it's like how can how can you return back to this you could say how, how could you return to an old lower energy state like in mm -hmm, like in right. like in chemistry so it's like in a way i feel like with libidinal economy it's like how can you return back from these high intensities of libidinal intensification back to these you know, these lower, these lower strata, if that makes sense. We're analyzing it from this hyper libidinalized lens. And how do we make sense of these uh, social phenomena then directly and making analogies to these higher intensities, you know, really overextending the, the heuristics or the models, for example. Yeah, I see Coop 
your your note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that was good. That's yeah, that's a uh, and. And Q, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, Leotar, you know, contra what Takun in the in the cybernetic hypothesis at the very end, they they've been quoting libidinal economy throughout the whole text, and then they they kind of give some reasons why Leotar went astray in this book. Now, Leotar has his own reasons for calling it an evil book, whatever. I don't find Takun's critiques to be to be on point, and I'll just give one of them. The one thing was that Leotar seems to be not seems to be for them, for Takun, they say that Leotard is like, don't worry, go enjoy, you know, yada, yada. And I don't necessarily, from our studies together, I don't see that as following because I don't see Leotard necessarily saying, and you're, you're putting it correctly. It's, I don't see necessarily Leotard being like, okay, we need better ways of regulating intensities or we need, we need more logical ways of, the intention behind intensification. I think Leotard is is not giving us some kind of prescription or program and telling us, he's not telling us to go out and enjoy, or he's not even telling us to, to not come. He's showing <laughs> the logic, what's what's behind the logic of not coming in the history of, of thinking. Yeah. Right. Right. And and it does seem for Leotard, this is not a text that we're going to necessarily get all the answers from. And he's he's kind of forcing us and I think we might see in the last chapter, but it's reading the book itself is this kind of intensification protocol, but it's not necessarily going to give us all the answers. It's not pretending to. And yeah. so I only brought up Takun just to say, like, I didn't, I don't find it to be, it's kind of like some misreadings of Foucault's history of sexuality, where he mm-hmm. says the exact opposite of what he's being critiqued for, which is like, Oh yeah, sexual liberation. We're all free now. And Foucault's right. like, no, that's not. <laughs> you know, not that's. And so I see the same thing going on when it's like, how do you? How did you? Did you read the same libidinal economy? Right. Like <laughs> I don't see in the whole book. I don't see Leotard championing intensification in itself. He's laying it out for us, and we're we're going along. But he's not just, hey, go, go, go have fun. I don't see that. <laughs> Stick yeah. to the intensities. Don't represent it at all. <laughs> right. Know? Right, I'm completely against cybernetics, you know? Yeah. No, it's like, no, it's, it's, there's no uh, normative judgments there whatsoever. Right. It's, it's almost like a scientific theory in and of itself. I think that's the best way I could put it. It's almost like its own cybernetics in a way that re- rejects cybernetics as the be all end all representation of the cooling of the band, yet understands that cybernetics is one such arrival of the cooling of the band. In a lot of ways, just to kind of piggyback on that, you know, they forget who quoted this, but they talk about how Deleuze and Guattari's work is engineering manual or something, you know, right. it's like explicitly yeah. trying to be something like that. So I feel like in the same line or in the same trajectory, Leotard is doing something very similar by kind of, as you put it, Young, making his own cybernetics. It's like, well, this is how you follow through with what he's saying, taking what you're saying, practicing what you preach, and then so libidinal economy itself, the book, is a result of this following through all the way through an intensity. It's not fetishizing intensities for for their own right. sake, as as right. you were saying, Taylor. It's you know putting that into practice. You know, I want, I want to say like becoming imperceptible, right? Yeah, I, I guess my main point was that in so far as he's trying to get us to see libidinal economy and political economy in the same lens, in the same frame as taking part in the same system or being being the same thing i don't necessarily see that as championing a sort of it's not necessarily like multiply 
your polymorphous perversions. It's that you already are that. You don't have to go out and have an ethics of of the orgasm or an ethics of of intensity, right? It's it's the fact that that is what we are faced with, and we have to see that. So I think it's just a totally. I guess that would be the thing where where if you reduce this book to it being a kind of go out and find your own pleasures and multiply them, then I, I think that, the, that, that you reduce the, you kind of throw this book to the side and say, nobody needs to read it. When in fact, I mean, reading it is, is an event as Cooper's kind of talked about why, why the writing is so ineffably moving, right? It, cause it, cause it, it fucks with you and it doesn't give you answers and it doesn't pretend to, it forces you to, to think through these things and to, to have these thoughts and these intensities that you're kind of, you can't necessarily do a lot with. And so it does build up some tensions, you know, and makes your blood boil and shit. Right. And that's how I would, I would see the book more as an intensifier for, for us thinking and feeling differently than saying how we should do that. But just to piggyback off what you just said, Taylor, because I think that's a really good nugget. You mentioned it early too, young about this intensification of the libidinal band. And it's like, this book is exactly that in a, in a way. I guess it's a good, really good way to start the book, which is he kind of spends a lot of time diagramming or showing how the libidinal band works in the first place or like how you can conceptualize it. Because on one side at this hyper-rationalistic, we constantly try to create these models of how the world works. And it's like we try to superimpose them. And it's like, oh, well, you can you can boil down economics to signs or blah 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 like these really rash all of modernity has these meta narratives right these these fixed structures you keep building up on them and that's just how the world works and it's like what we'll see later on in leotard's work with his attack on meta narratives as as his definition of postmodernism it's kind of really writing these intensifications to kind of dissuade us from those hyper rationalized viewpoints as you mentioned taylor it's like you already are this to use the losing Qatari's language, you already are this multiplicity. Right. So how do you, how do you go from from that understanding? How do you make theory? How do you, your ethics is already a molar ethics, for example. So you don't have to to use contemporary examples. You don't have to be a politically correct mainstream sex liberationist or anything like that. If that makes, if I'm making sense, that's like the fetishized fifth grade interpretation, in my opinion, of what we should be doing. If that makes sense. I guess it's the the question. It's it's like you know we just to stick with blues and guattari is they they I thought it was funny talking about it as like an engineering manual manual right anti Oedipus but I mean they do ask this question about what is a book for what is its use right they at least they say that in a thousand plateaus more concretely especially in relation and Deleuze already said it in relation to Proust's work right it's like how the book reads into us etc and I think that the the question about libidinal economy, and again, maybe maybe why Leotard goes on to discredit it is precisely because it, you know, as I said, it's not a program, and it's not, it's it's almost a schizophrenic machine. It's not it's not easily sayable what its effects will be, right? It's it, it is kind of this 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 intensification experiment, and so we can't necessarily say it's a tool for mobilizing the proletariat or class consciousness or or that it's or that it's a guide to to living well the non-fascist life the manual to the non-fascist life right it's it's hard it's hard to say if 
what the effects will be from reading liberal economy and you know given how much is going on throughout the text you know you could read this book several times and each iteration would bring you something new and give you new affects new effects potentially in subtly how you're thinking differently because it's not again it's not like leotard is a lot of the times he leads us down these false paths and and puts forward these these alternatives that seem interesting and then immediately i mean we see it in this chapter too immediately he'll be like don't think that right he'll, he'll, <laughs> he'll make us think think that and then fuck with us and 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 be like no that's the wrong that's the wrong path that's not even the right question and so mm-hmm. like that's part of the power of this book is that it, it it's it's not necessarily one doesn't necessarily need to read this book to understand either later Leotard or other thinkers and it's precisely i think that that that's one of the beauties of it that it's not just something in a toolbox it itself is is kind of calling into question our own proclivities for the tools that we have that we fetishize and the and the different moves we theoretically make or the different you know strategies of thinking i mean he he is kind of calling all of this into question and never once telling us where to settle i think that's that's what grant tries to get out in his introduction and his translator's yeah. introduction he tries to kind of show that leotard is perpetually trying to unmoor us i mean we talked about destratification yeah. and deterritorialization earlier but i do think leotard instead of describing that or or, or saying here's the logic of it i mean he's he's trying to do that and yeah. we can either and we go with them or, or we don't a lot of times we we're as i said we're always kind of lagging behind or or drifting off and i think that that's leotard's goal i mean coop said it's like with the last chapter title the economy of this writing i mean leotard is consciously aware that bringing in all these disparate elements Taoist erotics and the you know the stock crash you know he's trying to get us to to think about all these different things as relative to you know that the, if there is a fundamental thesis it's that liberal economy is is political economy and yeah. and, and it, like that but but even that i think leotard wants to continue to like poke at and to say okay well what does that what does that mean right what is that how does that you know how does that change our way of viewing phenomena he's not going to tell us that we have to find it for ourselves i think when you put it in terms of affects that i really like that because your metaphor of picking at it if we use the metaphor he uses at the beginning of the book flattening out the body (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know you you know it's kind of like this matryoshka of affects you know you can keep breaking it down splicing it splicing it breaking it down uh, and you're never going to get to some fundamental like sediment yes uh, almost like a go to right theory, yeah right? right yeah you can well, you can what, yeah. keep going all the way down in in a way leotard is making you to coin the the same the same logic that deleuze is kind of trying to make you do it's a book that tries to make you think it pushes you to think and it takes you on this you know these trajectories these lines of flight it doesn't hold your hand it's trying to make you think and it like taylor mentioned it gets you mad and other times you're like, wow, this is really good. And then it just, you know, it's kind of like uh, this foreplay that yes. um, that Leotard is trying to do in, in a way that's like, it's a, it's, it's a own and self-enclosed cybernetic affect machine. Yeah. Well, I like that. Yeah. And that sort of speaks to what I finally found, I think, in this chapter as one of the through lines to the postmodern condition, which is his sort of comments on science, which come 
in this chapter, and I'll read a quote from 215 where he says, today it's science is at first glance merely research into efficiency, that is into yeah. power. Right. And on the second, merely the production of strange and efficient fictions, which fits kind perfectly of with, right? <laughs> yeah, it fits perfectly with the postmodern condition if you've read it, is sort of arguing to a university. You know, he wrote that as a, basically he was, he was commissioned to write yeah. it for a Canadian university. I thought it was Toronto, but I could be completely wrong. I think for it's some Quebec Canadian university. Oh, Quebec, you know, exactly. Quebec University. And there's this through line to the postmodern condition where he sort of expresses the danger of science becoming the ultimate meta narrative or, you know, the ultimate fiction of right. what's at the base of everything. But he also says then what we can understand is, is that science in a way is, is the greatest madness of mm-hmm. sort of like consensual madness of, of the entire populace. Cause he says on two fifteen later, he says basically that the madness of the great zero and so to speak is it's desire. It, this is quoted. It's desire to bring a body, which can only quote unquote be if it is represented to a standstill. Hmm. So science is basically the desire for a great zero itself. It's not an objective knowledge as anything. It's not an objective knowledge in a certain way. It's a slowing down of the band. But science is is masquerading itself as the great zero itself, as the be-all, end-all objective findings of the human race itself. And, I mean, they would believe that beyond the human race, these things would hold true. So simultaneously, there's a through line here, but there's also this idea of madness as simultaneously something... I mean, I consider that pejoratively in a way that science is sort of a madness, but I don't think we should take it that pejoratively. I think madness is actually a good thing. It's the carving out of a non-place. Right. The problem yeah. is science is just the biggest non-place. It doesn't exist. <clears throat> it's a non-place that was carved out and it's beautiful and it's, it's weirdly close to reality. It's, you know, something that is a very compelling meta narrative, but it's still a meta narrative. And I think that point in this chapter, finally, I was like, okay, here's the leotard I know, (laughs) you know, the one from the postmodern condition, the one who has this specifically skepticism of meta narrative science. Yeah. And the the one thing that he seems to, again, to use that term, that through line to, to Mm -hmm. the, to, to the later texts of the seventies and and the postmodern condition is this fundamental point that science doesn't give a shit about truth. That, right. that, that in its essence, truth is not the the object, which is why right. he says here it's about efficacy yeah. and he, that, right. that notion of, of fictions, which isn't, you know, we have to take it in a Nietzschean sense, right? It's not, it's not opposed to reality, like an appearance or something like that, right? As you were saying, the, the term later will be these little meta, these little narratives, you know, we have to learn from science that crafting of, of little narratives that don't that don't turn back into, because you already see, I mean, if you continue your quote, I won't c- keep quoting, but he brings up, oh, no, absolutely. he brings up little girl marks again. And this yeah. desire for, uh, what does he call it? Social genitality. Is that the word? The yeah, desire for a social genitality in which all the partial pulsions would be reabsorbed. So this, this right. body of capital as a unitary totality yeah. and how we have to see that as, just as much of a meta narrative as the right as the well as, as the as the molar marxist meta narrative of the end of history with right know, with the abolition of classes 
And it's um, like, yeah, Marxism. And it's funny too because when Marxism, especially Marxism-Leninism, calls itself a science, you know, the famous right. like, moral <laughs> yeah. science. It's like, well, you're striving what you don't even achieve, which isn't a bad thing per se. Right. But your strive, your goal is to be a science, is to be the ultimate meta narrative. And like, even in the articulation of what Marxism-Leninism is, is this belief that it is the ultimate meta narrative. And even Leotard right. is saying, Dialectical like, materialism. Marxism is great in the same way science is great. It's a great representation, but it's not the be all end all. It's not the way things work inevitably or organically. At all places, at all times. At all places, at all times. And I think that's the big distinction for like the meta narrative of science too, right? Because it's it's mm. contingent by, by what? By reproduction. Right. Can you reproduce the same conditions right. of the experiment or like, I guess not the... Yeah, I guess the conditions must be, there has to be a congruence of condition yeah. and outcome. Yeah, I don't know if you want to speak on that more, because that was a really interesting point about the reproduction end of it. Yeah. I would, um, I would be interested to hear what you have to say about I that. Thought, I was thinking about this too, like in the sense of capitalism not being a mode of production, but a mode of reproduction. And I think we wow. might, I might have even gone into this previously, but I, I had that thought this morning just in preparation of fair. the text and i think it very much like maybe it's just libidinal economy has just seeped into my brain and it's driving me in that direction well i was gonna because that, like the, that that's what the perfectly f- into yeah. the he, he he actually provides two uses of wealth force and power and the first one the major one like you just said is reproduction which he defines as circular global and organic the mm-hmm. way that the system reproduces itself and then two the pillaging the partial, deadly, and jealous factor of power, which mm-hmm. uh, in his, I don't know if I can judge this because I'm doing a very bad logical almost fallacy here to say that like the first use of power, you know, therefore the most important or the most prevalent is reproduction, like you're saying. I don't know if I should do that, but I, I, I do think that you're right in that way, that reproduction is sort of the ultimate wealth in a certain way. The ultimate I mean, use of wealth is to reproduce <laughs> the exact same system. And I think, obviously, Al-Husair would probably agree with me. Yeah, Al-Husair is very big into capitalism as not production, but the reproduction aspect. The the ISAs, the exactly. state apparatuses, the, yeah. they're, they're, I mean, it's what, um, in another, another register, well, I mean, like, you brought up Al-Husair because the ISAs, the apparatuses right. are for reproduction, reproduction of, mm-hmm. so it's basically social reproduction, right? So exactly it's of capital in, of the material yeah. reproduction. And Deleuze right. and Guattari bring up the will to power when they talk about armies, states. We could say churches. I think is something like army, states, churches. What's these old dogs wants to die, mm-hmm. right? So this this logic of 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 self reproduction is extremely important to libidinal economy, and and we could. You know, he doesn't say it here. He he may bring it up earlier in the book, but this, you know, you could obviously go to Freud. Here he goes to Freud in inhibition because he's working with the question of intensification and the damning up that we already talked about. But Freud also would talk yeah. about the compulsion to repeat. And so like, yeah. if you if we wanted to yoke in the ISA's, Althusser's notion of social reproduction with this compulsion to repeat, I mean, again, that would, that would again make Leotard's point about we have to we have to consistently see political economy as, as libidinal economy. Yeah. Without, without any separation. How That's much great point. of this can be graphed onto the the example of, you know, the reproduction of the 
homoerotic Greek society, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. the same reproduction of to keep that society, to keep the homoeroticism structures in place. And the only reason why they have that transactional, you could say, you know, the transactional intercourse with their wives is to, you know, propel, to, to reproduce, to, right. to perpetuate. And in a way, like capitalism does the same thing. It only it only provides innovation in so far as it's innovation to reproduce itself, right? Right. It's like, oh well, this this great new novelty is great in so far as it perpetuates the same thing. It's like the the eternal recurrence, but the eternal recurrence of the same as as opposed to like the more delusion eternal recurrence. But I guess I I wanted to tie this back to. I wanted to ask you guys a question real quick to what you guys think about this. How much of Leotard's work could you maybe describe as a transition from, to use Foucault's work, as a transition from an episteme to another? And we're, we're, we kind of are seeing it in terms of his, this kind of like trust in Marxist metanarratives to these more atomized, I don't know, these more atomized. Epistemically suspicious in a way, like you were saying. Yeah. Because to me, it seems that's we're getting here. Like this, if he calls it his evil book, it's only his evil book. And so far as he might even be holding on to, you know, it's like, oh well, the Marxist meta narrative mm-hmm. still exactly. still means something to him, right? The Marxist meta narrative is almost the intensity that he, in in the same way that Kierkegaard labels faith as this thing that can't be reasoned. He understands that the Marxist meta narrative is flawed, yet it's been a core aspect of his experience in life. I, I see the evil book of being like, he reached a point where he realized that Marxism itself is a meta narrative. But yeah. after the fact, he was, well, leftist politics, Marxist politics, I shouldn't just abandon those, which is so interesting. Right. I really I really like the way you, you asked that question because I think it's just the big question. Why does he disown this book? What is it about this book that is so antithetical to certain I would call it quasi meta narratives of the left, quasi meta narratives of Marxism. I assume that kind of like Deleuze and Guattari got mocked for anti Oedipus with all the misunderstandings about, yeah. oh, the schizo is the revolutionary, right? right. Which is which is just the <laughs> which is which is the kind of joke that, or and probably not so much a joke, but the misreadings that they heard. I assume yeah. that that if this book made a tenth of the dent that anti-Oedipus did and we don't I don't know that it'd be interesting you know I mean anti-Oedipus did have a kind of a you know quote-unquote we could say it was a bestseller right Um, yeah who knows if this this book sold but for those those souls brave enough to read it I assume the kind of questions he got so what you really meant to say was x y z I assume Leotard was like all right I'm done with this fucking book (laughs) you know I'm done talking about exactly I don't want to explicate it I'm not going to write another book to explain it, you know, a, a reader's guide. Now I, I'm giving a charitable reading because, <laughs> yeah. because obviously that, that doesn't mean that he may have had specific points that he would retract or that would state differently, but it, it does feel like by calling this an evil book, he's like, he's like, we're going to speak no evil. We're not going to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, You know what I that's mean? There so, is- yeah. That's so interesting because I don't know if you remember the only reason I, fully remember as I listened to these episodes, which I think it was honestly the first episode we did, you actually talked very similarly and we were talking about uh, me and you had the same belief. I remember this exactly of, of Guattari and, and Deleuze and Guattari distancing themselves from 
call, you know, people like you're saying would call the schizophrenic, oh, you're saying the schizo is the vanguard. Literally right, the schizophrenic right. is the vanguard of the revolution. And they were saying, no, 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 you need to understand schizophrenia as an epistemic and ontologically different thing than right. catatonic schizophrenia or clinical schizophrenia right. is what they actually call it. But it's like you're saying is like that disavowal itself mm-hmm. is something to do with how Deleuze and Guattari had to come to those ideas. It's almost like a re-territorialization, we were saying, you know, of we're both saying in a certain way, actually, I think the schizo may be the vanguard of cosmological revolution, of revolutionizing the way that we rationalize the universe, so to speak. It's interesting that you have tied it in a way, because it's really opened it up to me, of maybe in a certain way that idea is sort of speaks to the certain disavowal of this book, that Leotard has done of saying, this is an evil book. You know, it speaks to something that I myself am not ready to accept because I need in a certain way, as we all do, I'll admit it. You know, I'm certainly a Marxist in certain ways, the meta narrative of Marxism, of a political program of things that are not just cosmological and epistemic or ontological, but political. There's like this, this realization in the same way that Deleuze and Guattari realized sort of like that maybe schizophrenia needs to be rejected in order to save their academic careers and the and the shelf life of their books in the same way leotard says i want to be remembered as a marxist i want to be remembered in a certain way as as a post-marxist or a marxist and this book in a way i I would say not even in a way i think almost objectively speaking is almost politically apolitical you could read this book as any political ideology, whether it be extremely far right, extremely far left, or anywhere in between, above or below, and you would get something from this book that is not simply a prescription for political beliefs or to substantiate some sort of meta narrative you have about history or ideology. It's a book that attempts a science in the same way Marxism does. And in the same way, I don't think he rejected it because of this, but it's also why he insists during the book that we should reject it as a science. The idea is science is not something that should that should exist as the be all end all objectivity, but there's something certainly in my mind, intensely objective. And in, in, I mean that literally as an intensity, an intensity of thought that pushes you beyond sort of the current rationalizations into maybe the next ones. Yeah, my only response would be you're making me think um, now that the other reason, uh, an ancillary reason to for him to retract it or whatever you want to call it, uh, renounce it, would be that, like you said, in this politically apolitical way, it can be open to appropriation. Right. But but I find that less likely because, as we've already discussed, because of the difficulty of this book, because of the ingredients that he throws in, because of his his insistence on never fully giving us prescriptions that I, I find that less likely, but it's a possibility. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do think it's kind of like him looking back at a, at a post and being like, man, I got to delete this. Exactly. Shit, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, this just, this just kind of, this just kind of cringe. Or again, it's just the, in a certain way too, in an interesting way by renouncing the book, he actually intensifies it after the fact. Yeah. Right. More. Right. By saying, don't, don't read, don't read yeah, that book. Exactly. Yeah. That's a yeah. bad book, right? There's some, there's, there's a way in which that, that, that has the opposite effect, yeah, you exactly. know, um, of, of exalting yeah. it in a, in a certain, 
uh, in a certain way. But anyway. in terms of jouissance of the book, that I think adds a certain jouissance in the kind of Lacanian fashion of transgression. There's a certain transgression involved in it. Right. Maybe a, a good, a better question would be, it's an evil book in what terms? To me, the book is a work of art. That's kind of uh, one reading that I have of it as an art piece. Not, ne- I mean, obviously it's not a novel, but I almost feel like it is a sort of theory, novel, theory. I mean, theory it's fiction. not, it's like a proto-theory fiction in a mm-hmm. kind of way, although that's very, like an abstract, in a ab- very abstract way. But I think it's certainly, I don't know, that's the the feeling that I get strongly from it is this is like a, a piece of art. I mean, I think that's the right way to, whatever label you want to put on it, I think theory fiction is fine because I think for Leotard, the point is not to argue by thesis. And yeah, he, he, and this is where he and Baudrillard share so much in in that sense. And like you mentioned, I think in some of the previous episodes where he directly calls him, you know, my, our brother. Yes, that's right. Right. And I think that, yeah, that I can definitely see that. I, I wish they had partnered (laughs) up and done something together because that would have been just, amazing i'm very drawn to the sort of thing that baudrillard does he does a very similar thing it's it's not about you know this sort of logical whatever and i mean if you go through and like read reviews of something like fatal strategies or whatever people are going to say yeah there's no logical program here this is this is something else calling it a work of art is, is appropriate because one doesn't come to this book prepared to read it you know even if you can do some of the legwork by by studying Freud and Hegel and yada yada, uh, which definitely helps. You know, this is this is an event, right? You you don't you yeah. don't open the first pages and be like, oh, I recognize this is Aristotle. You know, like it doesn't yeah, yeah. doesn't follow. Even even having read Anti Oedipus, you know, you're not like, oh, I was ready for the labia to be spread <laughs> out. You know, I, you're you're not. So so it is an adventure. It's it's an event and. Um, and in that yeah, sense, but. it is it is like a work of art. And in that sense, you know, it doesn't have truth of the capital T, right? Yeah. It, it gets back to what I was saying. It's what we get out of it. So it has these provisional yeah. truths for, for us. It's actually really helpful to me. And I'll, I'll provide like a little bit of how I understand it, but it's literally exactly what Taylor just said. It's so interesting for me to think of this book as an event mm-hmm. in the sense of the theory of an event, you know, drawing from Badu and mm-hmm. and other philosophers of the event as a singularity, and Baudrillard himself, who does this in uh, the Spirit of Terrorism, which mm-hmm. I, I had read recently about the event, meaning that the event, what can be called an event, is something which is a singularity, something which doesn't have a ability to be deduced into an interpretation. Meaning that, like, we can't all talk here about if libidinal economy is a, an event of a book, none of our interpretations will be exactly what the book actually was because mm-hmm. the book itself evades right. interpretation. But yet the book provides this extreme libidinal potency that Bogiard brings up in The Spirit of Terrorism where he's like, okay, terrorism is singular and potent because you can't describe what happened because it in his words, the symbolic exchange of death evades our ability to symbolically understand why somebody would kill themselves, literally is how he explains it. But what I'm trying to say is, Baudrillard says, for us theorists, the theory should be equally, if not greater, in its interpretation of the event, almost greater than the event, which is why Baudrillard says in 
Spirit of Terrorism, he's writing about 9-11 and he goes, the Twin Towers committed suicide because he's trying to reach this interpretation that is, that is at least commensurate with the potency of the event itself, which I think that I'll try and tie it back in in my own understanding of how the libidinal economy is sort of an event in this way and that none of us can interpret it properly, so to speak like you would somebody who's writing a book that's not an event, but is uh, reducible to an interpretation of what's signified, so to speak, a structuralist almost interpretation Mm -hmm. of what's going on. It's a book that all of our interpretations to a certain extent exceed the confines of the interpretation of the book and sort of chart out a new path that is equally as singular as the book itself. Your interpretation should exist as a singularity in the same way that the book is a singularity exceeding any interpretive reduction. It's interesting that that symbolic or that act of terrorism, is, it contravenes this notion of, as far as you know, I said earlier, with capitalism being a mode of reproduction, right? Although there is the creative destruction element of capitalism too, though. Can capitalism absorb death? I don't, you know, maybe 9-11 shows that it can, like in a sense, right? It can and it can't, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Symbolic exchange and death and spirit of terrorism, Baudrillard brings these pieces out, is no, because in a certain way, he believes the system of exchange of the universal law of exchangeability, that everything should come to a complete imminence of being Mm -hmm. able to be exchanged or weighed upon calculation itself. You should be able to calculate how much 9-11 cost, and that's the event, right? The problem is 9-11 is obviously much greater than the material costs of the terrorist attack itself. It was something that, and that's why, that's actually why, just as a slight digression, Baudrillard says the Twin Towers committed suicide. Because he's saying the whole relationship between terrorism and, you know, the hegemon, the United States, is that we don't die because of terrorism. We die because of the response to terrorism. We died because of our own suicide of the Patriot Act, national security measures that completely obliterate our state into a completely tyrannical authoritarian government of national security interests. He was keen on the fact that, no, it's not that they hit the building, it's that they hit the building and the building itself killed itself because this is exactly how our system works. It's funny, I actually saw a meme the other post the other day and it was showing that the towers were connected underground by the- Exactly, I saw that too. That's why I love those. And that's why in a certain way also I'm like Baudrillard was right, you know? Yeah, yeah. But those interpretations, I love those. The memeing of it is, yeah. is so indicative of Baudrillard's statement right. that it's a singularity that we can we can only like, you can't even joke about it bad enough to elicit the same response as 9-11. You probably could in 2002, 2003, but these days you couldn't make a 9-11 joke that's as terroristic as 9-11 itself. Whereas Baudrillard's saying, I'm trying to do this. And it's funny right. that he didn't didn't succeed, even though people hated it at the time. America was, don't read Baudrillard. He wrote this crazy essay. And he tried to do that, but it's now I can read it and I understand it, which means that he wasn't completely successful in operating as terroristically in terms of creating a singularity as the terrorists themselves. <laughs> or but that could, idea itself yeah. is interesting to me, I'll, I'll just say. You could say that with time and with just things accelerating and i mean that in a loose sense not in, you know <laughs> things things continuing on in, in in the same logic the same vein you know mostly in what baudrillard had, had thought one could say that because 
Baudrillard's comment about the Twin Towers committing suicide because it doesn't affect us as it was intended, mm-hmm. our, our repression collectively has been successful, right? We have, we have forgotten what it was to harbor a knee-jerk reactionary type yeah. response to something as, I'll say, quote-unquote offensive, right, as yeah. what Baudrillard said. And right. so that, that the repression has been at least mostly successful, Right. Right. I mean, I'm sure there are some individuals who would still find that to be God awful. But on the other hand, it's is it more awful than the than the conspiracy theories that that want to make it into an inside job? Right. I'm leaving aside leaving aside their theoretical speculative value and their truth value. There's something going on with the human mind to process that event that 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 is recalcitrant and resistant to. The normal forms of, you know, to get back to what we said with Freud and cybernetics, right? That event was was unprecedented, un, incalculable, unpredictable to some some extent. And again, leaving aside whatever knowledge we may have had of, you know, for the collective psyche, right? Something that we had to work through in our own ways, and 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 we're still living in that aftermath. But for right. the four of us, it makes sense that 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 statement wouldn't be as offensive. But I assume there would still be everyday Americans where it's oh, yeah. right. It would yeah. it would it would touch a a sore spot. That's why I love the metaphorical use of, and there's definitely been many of the idea of false flags, especially when it comes to 9-11, right? There's been false flags everywhere and we know that false flags happen, but 9-11 as a false flag, me personally, it could have been, but it's so disparate that it's not even something that you should probably accept as a theory, but it actually speaks the idea of a false flag, which you could argue in a, in a completely Baudrillardian <laughs> sense was the purpose of 9-11 that interpretation of 9-11 was probably one of the most terroristic things in, a, in world history. The fact that the national security apparatus and the surveillance state comes out of that specific interpretation of right. 9-11 provides credence to this idea that the real purpose, the singularity would be to create an event that causes an interpretation so exponentially more potent than the event itself that it allows you to sort of create the thing that you wanted. So the false flag sort mm-hmm. of like metaphor would be like, you know, if you're a state, you would be like, well, if you have, and not like the strategy of tension in Operation Gladio, that was the explicit strategy, but we don't have enough information about 9-11 to say that that was strategic in any way. But you could argue in the Baudrillardian sense that if you're going to create an event that creates that much fear and that much vulnerability among the American people that the reaction is so much more aggressive and potent and its ability to create, you know, I would say the NSA itself has become massive. I mean, the, the digital security apparatus that allowed has is far more terroristic in that it binds our liberation, our freedom as Americans way more. No, I would say almost infinitely more than the terrorist attack itself. If we had done nothing, if we said, okay, they got a building, you know, they got a couple of buildings, but we're not going to do anything else. No, it's what's terrifying. What's horrifying. What's wrong with nine 11 was 
the fact that we had the Patriot Act after it, which we're still trying to figure out exactly what that did, you know, between the Section 201 and metadata, which basically this Patriot Act said that you can collect metadata on Americans, which means right. all of your calls, all of your emails, all of your posts, everything is tracked by the U.S. government because that's technically metadata. They can't technically listen to your calls, but they do anyway to most Americans because two things, you can just not get probable cause because you have a FOA court, freedom of, or not FOA court, actually, it's the FISA, FISA. court, FISA court, which is basically supposed to be a court that's covert to decide if we need to spy on certain people in a foreign sense. But because we've done the laws, you can spy on an American if they're related or calling any foreign person, which is basically all Americans. So you basically ensured that they can now look at all of us. They can maintain that security apparatus simply because the event itself was so effective in right. producing this thing. Yeah, I mean, my my takeaway would, would, would be to say that the development of these conspiracy theories, these intense conspiracy theories related to this event in particular is precisely everything you laid out is this realization that we did this to ourselves mm -hmm. in the sense in which we allowed ourselves to become hyper fixated and connecting and investing into, into this security apparatus. Yeah. We did it to ourselves. And so retroactively we look back and say, it had to have been an inside job. Look at the power that the state amassed in exactly. these areas. Look at the wars they were able to participate in. You know, Bush got to, you know, avenge his daddy, that kind of shit. We, exactly. we rationalize in that retroactive way when in fact we're imposing a teleology begin because again we 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 we're desperately want to understand the the fact that like why that, that the event <laughs> makes sense in hindsight if it came if we did it to ourselves when really what exactly. we did to ourselves was was the aftermath right that why, this yeah. is why Lacan says the repressed and the return of the oppressed are the same thing it's just that by the same thing we mean um this retroactive deferred action right the noctroglykite of this after the event where looking back it's 2020 it totally makes sense yeah yeah mm -hmm. it was an inside job but that logic doesn't hold you know looking forward and saying there's that the state's going to do this big thing and it's going to be such a you know, effective emotional response. We're all going to be patriots again and all this stuff. Yeah. That that kind of planning in advance always is bound to be met with the skepticism of, yeah, but governments are fucking stupid. Right. Most of the time. And Most of the time. To, to, to impute to them the kind of power and foresight and planning, et cetera, it would take to end where we are, which is much more dystopian than we could have imagined before the event. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm neither for nor against. I, I'm merely saying right. that there is this logic that the, and the rise of conspiracy theories isn't just concomitant with, you know, the loss of truth and Leotardian, you know, down, right. down with meta narratives. It is, it is um, partly with, you know, with the acceleration of technology and these other things and events happening 
at, at a more rapid accelerated pace. clip yeah yeah, yeah. We, we are wanting to find a logic and a coherency in this retroactive looking back and right and thinking right. that that power where there isn't yeah yeah and that's the that's the miscognition <laughs> of the conspiracy there right, right like the mis- yeah it's the idea that it's actually wrong completely to call it a miscognition. It's the way that we actually come to cognize or to understand itself terrorism because terrorism is effective in its response to terrorism, right? So we're saying like the government clearly planned this because now they have this huge security state and 9-11 was like the biggest factor in allowing them to create, you know, what we imagine their utopia, which is the ability to control us completely through surveillance. And we actually understand that as the fact, but think of it this way, you know, it's like, it's not actually the government itself, most likely, in my opinion, that false flagged this thing. It's that we're using conspiracy to properly understand the effectiveness or potency or intensity of terrorism. Not to say that they planned on this happening, but they had a slight idea in sort of the intensity of their being and the intensity of their act of what would result is that if you provide an act of terrorism that is that much a singularity, the state will respond in a way that is, you know, disproportionately hurtful to itself because it can't symbolize death. I can't understand why we would kill ourselves in order to hurt it. And the state oh, yeah. itself probably doesn't necessarily plan those things, but the terrorist on a certain probably unconscious level understands that in doing the act of terrorism, it's achieving its goal, not in the act of terrorism, but in the secondary response of creating fear in the state to the point where it would eradicate the freedoms that it provided to its citizens in order to provide security. It's almost like the terrorist understands inherently the singularity of the interpretation of its act, not the singularity of the event. The terrorist understands certainly in a certain unconscious way that what it's trying to achieve will be produced by the reactive, responsive act by the state and not actually by the action it's going to take, which I think is objectively true if you look at the the terrorist sort of historical materialism, so to speak, of like what happens after terrorism. Now, I, I will say quickly, just to qualify my statement, that the U.S. government especially has been very aware of this fact. And that's why Operation Gladio was so successful in Italy, especially because it realized that if you give bombs to fascists and they bomb things and then you give bombs to fa- to Marxists, but also probably more likely fascist terrorists who will pretend to be Marxists, that you can create exactly the thing that you want, which is almost a state totalitarianism because people will give up their freedoms in order to reach that level of security so to speak. So yeah. Operation Gladio proves that there is a direct interpretive method here, but it doesn't speak to the fact that the terrorists have the upper hand and that they understand that what they're doing will be sort of like the fruits of their labor, labor will be received in what they've done to the state to respond to their action, not in blowing up a building. It's in the state's response to the building. I guess the, the whole thing you guys have been mentioning, which I think is great in terms of how it seems like conspiracy theories as they relate to the postmodern man's epistemology 
to give credit where it's due, I think to some extent, CompBot is right, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, say what you will about CompBot, but in terms of what we've been kind of observing up until now, especially with not to give too much raise or credence to Q- QAnon or and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. right. American German idealism, if that, if to, to give it a pretty name, it's not the, as you were kind of maybe hinting at young, it's not like the event that matters. It's the meme, the mimetic repercussions that something has is, is, is kind of like the, where the government has opportunities to re-territorialize. I mean, you saw this with COVID-19 just to kind of bring it to a more recent event. It's like people give all this kind of credence to, oh, well, China planned it, blah, blah, blah. And regardless yeah. of whether or not China planned it, or regardless US, of whether yeah. or not, yeah, or the US or whatever, because I think governments are too stupid to do something like that. But regardless of whether or not that's true, it's how we, how governments in general react to things like that. It's it's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to, to re-territorialize. It's an opportunity for markets to restructure that gives you, I mean, you saw this with layoffs. People got laid off. They still don't have their jobs back. And it, it's just going to be hoisted as a, oh, well, you know, this is how the market advances and it's too bad for you. So it's, as, as I mentioned, it's not the, it's not the event that matters. It's like, it's, it's the meme. What yeah. kind of like, what, what happens afterwards, how, how we yeah. handle it. Specifically as the hegemon interprets the event that's that's what the terrorist understands best which i think is kind of what i like about i like to think of myself as a, a marxist too right <laughs> but yeah, we um, all do <laughs> we all want to be a marxist but we all want to be a good a good good girl marxist right unfortunately um, marxism just like doesn't <laughs> exist anymore in its orthodox right? sense <laughs> it's what's kind of right about mold bug kind of why i, I think People say, oh, Moldbug is kind of like, you know, an Anglo Foucault stuff like that. It's like, it, yeah, in a way he is because you kind of realize that whatever the current idealistic hegemon is, that's how, that's how, for example, democracy as an organ of, of control is going to, to react to whatever is opposed to it. And, you know, the neoconservative and the rise of neoconservatism, it's going to, you know, wage war on the Middle East for oil and the rise of politically correct politics it's going to be wide censorship across the internet not yeah. for the benefit of the left liberal it's going to be in the benefit of the, the centralized power yeah. of the companies it's not for the individual which yeah. it masks itself under it's right which i think is kind of where the right wing cathedral enthusiasts kind of get it wrong it's, it's like it's, it's apolitical it's right, it's right. The benefit exactly, of, exactly. It's for the benefit of who, whoever's in control of those servers. Intelligence. So. It's a, just to bring it back to Leotard for a second. Is he makes this point that the centralization of intelligence is inevitable, and it's also inevitably towards whoever has the resources to centralize intelligence. So literally in the United States, you can think of the United States general intelligence in the uh, Riza Negaristani sense of general intelligence, so to speak, is. The CIA, you know, or the intelligence community, they literally name themselves intelligence. It's the centralization of all information towards a specific particular source is inevitable, regardless. But there's also the inevitability, if that's inevitable, that if you have more intelligence, you're also able to manipulate people towards whatever specific normative beliefs you have using that intelligence. 
if you know everything about everybody, which they clearly do because I put everything about myself out on basically open cameras and posts, emails, you know, which they, we know for a fact they're reading, you know, at least through a computer, they know us very well. The intelligence apparatus, the centralization of intelligence is inevitable, according to Leotard. I think maybe we can pivot back to, and I'll throw this as an open question, perhaps. What do we think? I think perhaps like the credit, like this element of credit, um, and particularly like as viewed like in the sense of delaying gratification um, and especially as referenced in here is like the story of of the cheese like this the cheesemonger I'll call him right that is continuously running out uh, so he's operating his shop and running over to exchange the currency that he's receiving to, to buy more cheese so that because the currency is fluctuating so quickly that he doesn't want to lose right yeah immediately runs to buy cheese which is kind of funny that i think like it's he's a literal cheesemonger right Right. cheese pilled one cheese like in the sense like cum right or or semen yeah (laughs) or in the sense of money sometimes uh, i don't know if anybody says it anymore but you know Oh yeah, yeah. Che- give me the cheddar, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. True. Yeah, good call. Uh, that's so that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, I didn't we even talk think about that. <laughs> we well, uh, we we talked a little bit about this yesterday, Coop. But uh, just to be quick about it, I think I think uh, the we talked a little bit about the question of the velocity of of money, which is just the rate at which notes, occurs, notes yeah. or coins are exchanged. And, and I, I mentioned to you that this is why I was reading Copernicus. He was the, one of the first to like theorize it or at least to kind of give it a simple mathematical notation and i was telling you about how henry the eighth you know at a certain point he wanted more silver this gets us kind of back in the trade chapter but it's important here right and so he instituted um he he had the the mint the the statement new coins but they weren't worth the they weren't worth their weight in silver they just had this you know they had the king's semblance on it so it would be guaranteed for the rate of exchange and yet so what happened was that the the old coins that were worth their weight in silver began to be hoarded and the only coins that were really used in exchange were the new coins right because mm-hmm. people didn't want uh there was fear that that the king's decree could be overturned or right. not given and, and and then what's the question about these coins outside of the kingdom outside of you know, Great Britain or England or whatever, they're not going to, they're not going to have the same exchange rate. And so you, you see a lot of uh, political fallout from that and some, some headaches, you know, from this mercantilist side, but w- with the cheesemonger, right, with this rapid fluctuation of currency, you, you know, it is this, it's almost the opposite, right, where, you know, you don't know if anyone's going to to want that money or if that money can do anything at all can can be circulated and you see the crisis that that he has and yet he's and yet he's still almost even more intensely invested in this movement of commodities because of the fluctuation oh, you know it's it, it's it's counterintuitive to a certain extent but it's uh but yeah go ahead 
Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. Yeah, what he says here, because at first he gives us sort of this history of Aristotle's apprehension to as to speculation. And he right. says, you know, Aristotle views speculation as counter to nature itself. He's like, this is not something that's natural. It's almost, I would say, homosexuality. Mm. It's reproduction of itself, you know, in, infinitely. I would say that's a connection to homosexuality in, in the Chinese erotic. And he's like, this contains what he considers a potentially dangerous infinity. Because you can speculate forever. You know, we see that with any commodity. But, you know, right now it's Bitcoin. Bitcoin could potentially just infinitely go up if you invested in Bitcoin when it was first invented you like your percentage increase would have been like hundreds of thousands of percent so it's like yeah you can go infinitely up with bitcoin what leotard says is that that kind of need or limit you know for things that aristotle presupposed he presupposed need you know that we would need certain things and that you can't just infinitely increase the price of something and expect it to always go up he says that can't actually halt the process of circulation. You know, right. speculation is actually kind of like a built-in thing. I think it's the, it, it, it's interesting that it's it's the speculation on credit that coincides with what you were saying about there's something unnatural about that. Hmm. That it's 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 the fact that there's no surplus revenue that's being that's held in 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 abeyance, right? That there, it's, right? It's it's speculation on nothing, so to speak, or speculation on uh, it's it's the unpredictability of the the call loans. You know, at, at what point they can be called in at any time. And yeah. I, I think this is um, on my version. It's two thirty four. Coop. It might be another page or two for you, but it's a. Uh, he says credit money circulates here according to a time which is not that of productive capital. There is no longer a natural cycle nor anything comparable. There's no longer any cycle at all, only upward and downward trends and their reversals, which in a turbulent period are unpredictable. So that gets kind of back to uh, what you were saying about Aristotle and the, this unnaturalness. It is interesting that uh, Leotard points out it's it's a totally different temporality, right? It's a, yes. It's a totally different time than the body, the thing of the commodity being part of the the surplus of um, uh, a reservoir to be, you know, to be held liable for the exchange. It's similar to what Dante does in the Inferno with the mm. usurers and the high interest rates, which yeah. are which Aristotle too uh, points out. You know, but but in but the he Bible. Used, but he you know, uses the, a yeah, he uses a lot of these beats up the usurers. <laughs> yeah, he uses in the Bible a lot of these metaphors of it being unnatural against nature and has kind of implications, like you said, of the standard trope of it being akin to to a kind of homosexual activity, right? Mm. Um, except it's more abusive in a way. I think I think the usurers are down pretty fucking low in the Inferno, if I remember correctly. I think they're in the bottom. Most uh, they're, toward, they're, getting, they're getting towards the bottom. I think they're like the seventh or eighth circle. They're they're pretty low. I yeah, that's that's amazing. Can you explain that like a little further? Because that was amazing. I want to hear like a little the, more about, especially the homosexuality connection at the end there. Yeah, I, I would have to look back was, at the, really, the Inferno to, really to double check and well, make not sure the Inferno, that, but in the. Oh. Leotard, you know, oh, the idea um, of homosexuality with reproduction that you were saying. 
Well, I think that, that what I was what I was trying to I guess I may have mixed my words. What I was trying to say is that no, Dante no. uses some allo- some 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 images of the users being right. unnatural, and it, I think that they're um, this unnatural this unnaturalness. The tropes. It's basically like nature has been. Um, denatured and turned against itself been corrupted and i think that there are yeah. some images used I, I i don't know here if leotard is wanting us to think back to the lydians or the greek or the Grecians or yeah, um, yeah. or anything like that but i do think that he wants us to i think the interesting thing that i found in this whether we link it to homosexuality or not because i'm going to go off on a tangent but the thing that i found <laughs> interesting was the the fact that Leotard points to the crisis really getting pressure built from all these loans are not coming from bank institutions, mm-hmm. right? So again, it, it, it's not based on any sort of capital or commodities or uh, right. what, what do you call them? Well, not commodities, but you know, there's no reservoir kept. There's no, there's no bank to guarantee. Right. Right. There's less and less of the banks that are guaranteeing these loans. It's more and more of these companies, these right. businesses who who are fueling the intensification, kind of like what you guys were talking about with Bitcoin. It's fueling this intensification of 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 more and more companies buying into this potential, the speculation on credit. Exactly. And well, you think about, I mean, in the, the context of like like the Dutch and tulips, right? It was literally called exactly. it was like a mania. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that so that say something about boom. this. Say something about this. Well, you know, like I th- it was like in six, 16th, 17th century um, yeah. uh-huh. Holland, I guess they tulip bulbs became this crazy commodity, and everybody was investing. And this sort of okay prefigures. I mean, it's one it's of the first like booms. Yeah, exactly. One of the first speculative yeah. bubbles that occurred within the, the global the global economy. But yeah, it's interesting it, too because it maps on directly like a very similar thing occurs in the 29 stock market collapse because you have right. another mania, this speculative, and you can see this mania of libido really is what's yeah. driving it. What's the but, old but, adage about the stock market? The markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Yeah. And so the markets, <laughs> great. if the markets are a representation of desire, and flows of desire, then you know that mania, sort of thing that over overwhelms or it breaks the circuits of logic within the system itself, right? Abundance of joy. Like there's so much. Yeah, exactly. And this is where I'm curious. This yeah. could maybe even lead into because he mentions Hegel having yeah. this, this negative vision of of desire of desire yeah. as a purely destructive force. Too. Yeah, right? yeah. He says Hegel's Hegel says desire in its immediacy in the immediate time frame is a destroyer it just destroys anything you know like if you need something you destroy it you eat it immediately you just like consume 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 the real concept of power that leotard comes up with is he says that there's a potentiality and he says i'll quote in 219 a potential and he calls it poissance which we were talking about like poissance instead of joissance and he says in the sense of an operational virtuality, which is never without an organization of events into a past and a future and their commensurability, or at least their co 
conceivability. In other words, it's a postponing fulfillment, which creates a reserve of energy at the same time as like a lack simultaneously. Yeah. Awaiting the hour of its suppression or fulfillment. What did I tweet? Or I tweeted something good earlier. It was what is what is capital, but but libido preserving? Oh yeah, yeah. You shared that with us. I think. Yeah. Right, and 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 I think that that's that's kind of the heart of of it. Why speculation on credit being more and more the more and more taken over by businesses. They they saw what the banks were doing. They're like they were like, hey, we want some of this action. And as I said, it's kind of a house of cards. Yeah, action has, and it's like who can come the fastest, rather than rather than the slowest. So, so you, so you don't have the the yin and the yang get unbalanced, right? Something like that, right? Yes. You don't. You don't have that rhythm. Overheating of the libidinal being. So yeah, or or just you could say the whichever one you want to say. Either all the water gets boiled out, or the water you know puts out the fire. However, whatever metaphor you you want but there there is something about and this is why the cheesemonger is caught up in yeah. this right because everyone's coming he's he's got to come along along with them because that money isn't worth you know so the whole and this it's is why he brings quickly up, well he brings yeah, up the, other the, words. <laughs> the cmc mcm yeah. those circuits become less and less tenuous right for someone mm-hmm. like the like the cheesemonger but also for some some of these businesses who are more and more taking these extravagant risks. And it is, mm-hmm. it is kind of a who can come faster type of deal. And with the call yeah. loans, you have to, at any point, they can, they can be like, all right, show me your semen reserves. And if you exactly though, you know, if you're all come out, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you're done. That's what, it, that's the and thing. Then, it's and also then, about storing yeah. semen. It's right. about storing the semen too. You know, it's about coming quicker because it's like you're trying to attract people who come quicker. But literally, he says on 223, the question of capital is that of knowing how desire as affirmative force becomes a reserve and institution. In other right, words, right, like right. Uh, in, in this Chinese erotics of storing your semen, you know, of storing other people's semen, you know, of storing like the energy impulse of everything. In the same way that you could relate it to advertising as like overtly sexual. It's about having other people come quickly versus you being able to right. reserve yes. as much semen as possible in this very crass way. That's yeah. what libidinal economy is. Right. It's the storing of semen, it's the storing of desire itself. Time preference as well, right? Because here's where the, like the imbalance is within capital, right? Because for the capitalist, for someone with capital, they have the ability to withhold their come. They can hold on to, but if you're, if you're a proletarian, you have to come, you, you don't have the luxury to wait. You need to, it changes you your, it's yeah, exactly. Your desire is intensified in a sense. Or it goes like back to the up. like Hegel, Hegel right. thing of desire in its immediacy is destructive. In other words, you have to consume things because what you desire is immediately food, water, things for my family. Yeah. That's the immediate, you have to consume those things. Yet, if you have those things, then desire becomes about how do you store desire? There has to be a surplus or the whole thing system will collapse because without the surplus, there's no stability to the libidinal band and it, it over intensifies mm-hmm. and destroys itself or it locks up and 
the reverse. What we see leading up to all of these different specul the speculation on credit and as we were kind of we we're kind of talking about this negative feedback loop where it gets it gets out of control it it, it moves away from any type of uh, recognizable equilibrium and it starts to uh, it starts to accelerate in a way that can't be basically has to lead to catastrophe which mm. it did and then who who suffers the most it's it's not necessarily the the big institutions or companies, even if right. some of them had to close their doors. It's what you were saying. It's the it's the the working the working class who inevitably suffers. Just like with the housing bubble in two thousand eight, we saw that you know normal Americans were the ones who who bore the brunt of the of the yeah. pain. You know, subsidizing after the fact the the risks taken. This like, reminds me too of this libidinal so. There's almost an analogy you could take between, right, because the male has the ratio of sperm within the ejaculate versus the one egg that is yeah. to be fertilized, right? There's a ton. So the metaphor would be labor as semen, capital right. as egg. Yeah. And so only one sperm can unite with the egg to reproduce, right? Right. So all the yeah. other sperm are effectively superfluous expenditure they're like the they're like that smoke or that right yeah the like heat. the heat the heat that is absorbed by the heat sink and that kind of yeah and i think even here this little section goes to it a use of money that anticipates result yet to come when its payment function is forced to settle a present or past debt to this reversal of time responds a reversal of relations between commodities and money the latter here takes itself as an end while an inner domestic chromatistics it is a means to the satisfaction of needs. MCM instead of CMC, isn't this ex exactly the same reversal that coitus reservatus performs by postponing ejaculation, putting wealth into reserve as semen as Dow intensifies, therefore, or as a bureaucratic clientele? On the other hand, it excites those regions, the woman capable of providing it with energy. Doesn't the merchant activate, extend the circuits of commerce by inciting new exchanges that will at first will inevitably seem useless and even unnatural. And doesn't he like the Oriental erotician postpone ejaculation? That is to say the use of goods that he causes to circulate for the benefit of that, which alone can relate them financial energy, energy is money. Yeah. It, it does seem interesting that, that we see with the, the 29, you know, stock market crash, Leotar is finally kind of giving us, I think a concrete image of one of these of the metaphor he's been using of the labyrinthine band, right? So this difference between or this tension between the furiously circulating energy intensities, et cetera, and on the other hand, a slowing down and a, and a pooling up and a reservoir of energy, a surplus. Right. right. And so that the tension between those two, you see that there 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 becomes a kind of uh, paradigm shift in the and he tracks it. He does a good job tracking it right in the in the 20s, which we associate with this era of decadence, rightly or wrongly. But it makes sense analogously when we look at his him pointing out year by year, the amount of these call loans, these uh, these risky loans being taken on by the banks is, becomes lower and lower, right? That the banks aren't the, 
become less and less involved and they really are as he says don't start with production and profit but with the bank and interest that's where he tracks the the eventual breaking point the future yeah right that's that's the thing i have a quote here where like about credit and how it can buy the future or capital or saving reserve which he also equates to like labor reserve capital itself but this quote is from 227 he says credit in its reproductive usage rests on this analogy the future it opens up is no different from the past the one and the other are identical in principle this is why they are reversible and this is how the creditor can buy his future in other words credit is the purchase of the future or in other words the destining so to speak buying the destiny of the future just one quick comment i guess on what chris you just said kind of like the you're buying the future right so it's kind of what you guys mentioned earlier about the homoerotic aspect of it it's the buying out the conditions which in a way you're buying out the current conditions that keep yielding the same amount so and in, in that way you're not buying change what you're buying is it's kind of like a, a game of the, what is it called endurance right mm-hmm. you're making sure that you know everyone else is coming faster while you, you know you you hold your load and at the end of the day the one who the one who holds off the longest is is the biggest winner and at the same time you can you can you can see this with like wall street bets just to kind of give a <laughs> Yeah. A good, common, you know, more recent event. The last person to pull out <laughs> is always the biggest loser in right. <laughs> these speculative bubbles. So yeah. just kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment there. Baudrillard, or sorry, a Leotard himself says, basically that the stock market in this quote is now the battlefield in a field of conquest by means of buying and selling. <laughs> On 227. <laughs> it reminds me of when he's referring to that battlefield, how... In the postmodern condition, he'll talk about how it's not impossible to conceive of a future and where governments fight over information as they do now for territory. I butchered the quote, but that's roughly what he says. In that regard, it's like, well, what is information but just another... It's an abstract commodity, right? It's not It's not really something tangible. I mean, it can be when you're talking about like networks and servers and things like that. I guess like in the current age of information that we find ourselves in with you know, these speculative bubbles, large portions of the markets being based on, what are they called? Um, what is the, the algorithm that they use? Um, High frequency formula. trading. Yeah, but they, they have the, I want to say like derivatives, but that's not true. Whatever, the, Quants, the equations. Quantitative traders. Yeah, like the actual, like <laughs> the actual equations that they use, you know, that stuff seems to me what the market seems to be focusing more and more on as opposed to, the necessary labor inputs to sustain that in a way just to kind of bring this to what the differences between like china's economy and the united states the united states economy is solely reliant on it's a capitalism based on business how much business as in contracts can you create as opposed to actually creating tangible goods and services so we saw that change which i think baudrillard kind of points out in terms of this transition to credit as this shift in the 80s towards financialization the financialization of capital as this is historical 
turn in capitalism, I guess. This quote from the text, I think it's good and might be relevant here is he says, uh, currency here operates basically as a sign of something else, a sign of industrial or commercial invested capital. It is not his own end nor its own limit. These latter are new commodities which will be exchanged against it at the end of the cycle. The unreality of the advanced is therefore temporal, provisional. It will be exchanged for the proper reality of commodities. Of course, these are in turn only means, and it is quite certain that for capital, they're only means, means of reproducing itself while growing. But it is precisely this function of postponement of the sign which endows anything whatever with the status of reality in the system. The nothing advanced by the bank to the entrepreneur is a reality because it will be exchanged for commodities. By making this advance of nothing, credit money in sum does nothing more than complete this nature of the sign in the system, which is nothing other than to refer endlessly to other signs. Just makes me think of that quote where he mentions energy as money, or money as energy. Take that literally. Energy is just another fancy way of thinking about like energy or like uh, labor inputs and labor inputs are just how you're incorporating labor units into whatever you're, whatever value you're trying to produce. And in that sense, you can always revert down to the lowest energy substrate, which would be like in neoliberal capitalist societies would be oil. So I don't know. It's just a, a point of thought that I, that I'm currently in and, makes me think of when I'm reading Leotard. Transcendental deduction of Boyle. <laughs> nice. I think one last thing perhaps that I was sort of interested in was this function of money to, or like what I couldn't understand is what the fuck is surplus? How and where is it generated? Because this currency is effectively, there's an equilibrium that's read. I give you the good, right? It's like, there's an equivalency where it reaches zero between, I guess, if I buy something and give you money for it, that's why we're coming to a zero, right? In a sense, or that's the purpose of money is to have this equivalency system so that you can like balance the books, balancing the both sides of the ledger. But then where is, what what is surplus and where how is it related to that, to equilibrium? How can there be uh, equilibrium or zero or settling of accounts if with surplus that seems like a contradictory sort of thing that i never quite got well that's the thing right like in marx's terms the surplus is coming from labor so it's exploited or alienated labor and i think in some sense leotard is saying that the surplus is a libidinal surplus right right it's the the libidinal intense these libidinal intensities when you are taking or doing the bookkeeping there's always a surplus of these libidinal intensities, the satisfaction, the oppression of the working class. They, you know, they partake in their own oppression because, you know, they revel or they, they enjoy the dissolution, the dissolvement of their feudal, yeah, their bodies and their, their feudal or what is it, their peasant identities. And it's like, in that sense, it's like that surplus value that's, that's not being taken into account is one, you know, you can equate it as oppression, but two, as a, as a, as a, what's it called, as value that you derive outside of the transaction. So to go back to the prostitution metaphor, and quote unquote, she would get more than what she's getting paid for. There's, you know, okay. in, uh, power, in, a, in an empowering sense. Yeah, yeah. okay. She, you know, she gets 
pleasure, but in, in, in another sense, she that's sexual pleasure. Uh, yeah, no, that that definitely that helped, I think, as far as like on the jouissance side. That's probably a good note to end on. Yeah, no, I that's, agree. That was that was great, guys. Yeah, that was that rocked. Yeah, that was a great time. It's always very insightful to talk to you guys about libidinal economy. I know that's the only <laughs> book we've technically read together, but it's like reading it with you guys is honestly like reading five books because it's like all of us reading books yeah. <laughs> right yeah, yeah. Exactly. we're all bringing something to it different it's all yeah. yeah we're bringing a singularity to a singularity to it all back you know <laughs> that's going to wrap up uh this installment of wicked leotard part six and i think we've got one final chapter that we're we'll be looking at in the next coming months or weeks or something whenever we can get together again this will be uh, the machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry and taylor atkins <laughs> signing off for the week Surround you. Begin surround you. Begin surround you.